This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Dum, da, dum. Hello everyone, limber up my friends, it's Dr Doolittle here and it's time for Radiotherapy. It's that time on Sunday morning at 3RRR when the studio is given over to all things health. And on the top of our list today is yoga. Do you like the way I say that? Yoga. Um, joining us in the studio is not one, but two yogi. Two experts in the practice of yoga. One is Lee Blaschke, past president of the Peak Body Yoga Australia, and the other is current president, Claire Netley. Both will be telling us all the latest from the research to the practice with detours through the spiritual and therapeutic sides of yoga. Also on our packed agenda are the VCE exams. Study up, people. It's a stressful time for many families right now as we head into the home straight for school life for those in Year 12. What are the signs of stress and what can we do to help? Now, to help us dissect these hot topics, we have two regulars with us here in the studio. Dr Capri is our Melbourne GTP and women's health expert. Of course, Dr Capri is somewhat of a VCE expert herself, having survived it as a mother twice in the last half decade. I think I got that right, haven't I, Capri? Yeah, absolutely. Near enough. And last, but of course not least, is Dr Seuss. Dr Seuss is a Melbourne psychiatry trainee, and let's face it, he's a future leader. (laughs) When not hard at work, he tends to be traipsing around the world, attending conferences and receiving scholarships and taking leave off work as a consequence. In fact, now that I think about it, as I gaze around the studio, I realise I'm by far the standout underachiever here. Two presidents, an expert and a future leader. My oh my, how will I cope? Welcome, team. Capri, how are you? Yeah, great, thank you. I'm so excited. I'm finally meeting Dr Seuss. Is that right? Correct, yes. Younger than I thought. My kids love you. It's great. I have aged well. You yeah, have aged indeed. well. Hey, yes. and Capri, you were late because you stopped off at a bike accident on the way. Yeah, a little 11-year-old kid with, uh, who came off his bike and, and lost you, a tooth. Did you, like, get out of your car and just, like, like a superhero, jump and say, stand aside, everyone, I'm a doctor? Well, I just drove really... And put really, your hands in the air like a surgeon? I just really drove slightly hoping that someone else would do, the, do their duty, but, you know, no-one did, so, of course, I felt obligated uh, to do the Good Samaritan thing. And, yeah, he was really distressed and lost a tooth and had no mobile oh. phone, so rang mum and, yeah... All good. Oh, somehow, good I feel somehow great. standing up and going, trust me, I'm a psychiatrist, doesn't really no. know that well, does it? No. I didn't Suze, actually say I was a doctor. <laughs> didn't you? No, I didn't. Oh, really? Suze, how are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome back. We haven't seen you for a while because you have been traipsing around the world. I have been around, yeah. You're off on another trip, though, soon, aren't you? I'm going to Washington uh, on a US FDA scholarship. What's FDA? Stand? Federal? The Federal Drug Administration. Right. Um, Excellent. To discuss drug I love it when big drug organisations give you money. Yeah, yeah always good. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're normally from Columbia and places like like that. <laughs> oh, that'll be fantastic, though. That'll be good. That'll be yeah. Interesting. And our special guest, who we're going to... I'll introduce more formally later when we talk more about yoga in a short time, but hello, Claire, and hello, Lee. Good morning. Good day, Steve. It's so great to see you guys in here. Do you, just, just as a heads up, do you go and do a session of yoga before you come in on a Sunday morning, or are you saving it for later? Yeah, I did it. Well, I did a meditation this morning. I've got a bit of a sore neck at the moment, so I did a very gentle meditation. Nice. Isn't this meditation now? It should be. We can't go too meditative, though. Yeah, don't fall asleep. Yeah, we don't want to go too meditative on the radio. People might be driving. If you're driving out there, stay focused, please, people. Um, Now, what have we got in the way of catch-up? Oh, you're going to surprise us. Seuss, you're going to start the ball rolling. What do you got to um, for a bit of uh, the latest news? Yeah, well, I, so I learned something interesting today, which uh, made me consider, you know, that old age of ignorance is bliss. 
Um, let me think That's of... why my life's been so happy. <laughs> yeah. so, spot on. You think of people in a similar vein who've got uh, disabilities and perceptual modalities, people who can't see. I have a cousin who can't, who's, who's deaf, and I always consider what life must be for him and whether his life is really that much worse off not being able to hear if he's never, he's never actually been able to hear. Um, but people who have disabilities like that, they go through life very early on knowing that they can't, here, knowing that they have uh, this deficiency. But recently, well, about two months ago, um, Professor Arthur Zenman, who's uh, in the UK, and his team, they've identified a condition called aphantasia. Aphantasia. Which is, mm, which is the inability... It does sound like it. <laughs> That's where the name comes from, I guess, fantasy. Uh, the inability to actually conjure up visual images in your head. So if I ask you to think about your son or where you grew up, you can conjure up these visual images of um, your, your, your house, the school that you, you went to. It's the mind's eyes we think of it. But these people just do not have this ability at all. And for most of them, they go through, it isn't until halfway through their adult life in conversation that they actually realise that they have this deficiency that they've never actually known. That was going to be my first question. How would you know if you've How never had know? it? Well, you don't know. And the thing, most of them don't actually know, which is what led me back to this question of what is a disability. If... If you can only know what you can know, and then by extension you cannot know what you didn't even know you could not know, mm. um, so it adds another level to this ignorance. It's bliss. like if aliens come to Earth and say, oh my God, we've found a whole world of people who can't fly. They all walk. It's like really bizarre. <laughs> Those poor things, we better give them all a pension. And if you didn't even know that you could possibly fly, uh, mm. is that a disability? Is, is it a disability if you didn't know it could be an ability? <laughs> I don't know, it left me thinking a lot. So how do these people express it? When, how does it affect their sort of expression of everyday life, do you well, know? Well, they don't until they talk to someone. And there's a few anecdotes from people who've been identified with disorder and it's only halfway through in the middle of a relationship where they found that they can't actually describe their girlfriend or can't actually describe their wife and find that other people are able to. And it's a, an apparently a very disabling condition only when you become aware of it. Mm. And until that point, they're... they're quite well blissful blissful yeah, yeah. as you say oh, amazing so it's an, is it a memory disorder then it isn't it's more of a, a, a disorder of visual processing it's a d- disorders in the visual cortex so they've done fmri studies so they can s- remember things they just can't visualize can't them the visualize way we can mind. yeah because yeah. when you know, as you said you know you just mentioned you think about your son and my son just texts me to say where are you dad um <laughs> no, i'm just texting back the radio and um yeah, but I can visualise him. Hmm. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's hmm. it's. I suppose it's different between two dimensional and three dimensional in memory terms. You know, I'm trying to think. Yeah, in a way, and we all have differences in the in the way we. There's there's a subjectivity to the way we all have our mind's eye and the way we visualise things. But this is, I guess, relatively binary in terms of not being able to visualise at all, at anything, at yeah. all, and anything at all. Which is, I, just, I can't even. Con- Conceive that. Fascinating. I love all these weird neurological disorders. You know, it's the man who mistook <laughs> his wife for a hat and yeah. or Elvis Sachs who just died. Who just died. Yeah. Um, and uh, Capri, you've got something for us too. You've been off studying as well. You two are like, you're like medical students out there working hard, learning the stuff. Just less stressed. Yeah, less stressed. Yeah. Um, Well, what I'm going to talk about quickly, and it's a huge topic, so I'll try and encapsulate it, was um, uh, based on a story on Lateline earlier this week um, where um, the subject of mandatory reporting by health practitioners came up, and it was was actually in um, reference to uh, the subject of bullying amongst surgeons. It's kind of sort of the two topics have been brought together, whereby... um, uh, uh, one of the leading surgeons, uh, neurosurgeons, um, t- Charlie, Charlie Teo, Teo yep. 
um, who's quite an outspoken, um, mm. bit of a maverick from my understanding. He I did is. a bit of back reading. And, yeah, uh, he's a, I've seen him many times over we? the years on things like 60 Minutes. He's a real... Media, he's a, he's very charismatic, it's fair to say. He you know, drives a Ducati. I think he also has you know, a very expensive convertible as well. And yeah. you know, he's, he's sort of like the surgeon that people fly all over Australia from... from he promises a lot, and he's con- very highly regarded amongst other neurosurgeons for his technical ability, although people do think he's a bit of a maverick, maverick and yeah. sometimes think he oversells stuff. Yes, and I think he I probably has, has been a subject of um, maybe a low degree of kind of bullying amongst his uh, profession because he seems to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. I did a bit of back yeah, regardless. Mm, he does. There, there are a, <coughs> more conservative um, surgeons find his style... Too great. I yes. guess it's, that's a nice, polite way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> but what he was highlighting on this program was that um, this idea of mandatory reporting, which is a, you know, a legal obligation by all health practitioners to report any conduct or um, uh, from any... It's not just doctors, it's nurses, uh, physios, uh, anyone involved in patient care. Um, conduct that is unprofessional. Unprofessional conduct, which is a yeah. very sort of broad um, uh, description itself, but um, that we're obliged to report any conduct unbecoming, I guess, and uh, that it can be used as a bullying method uh, or it's... Well, he reports that he's had um, personal experience of people who've, who've been bullied because they've been um, supposedly... He doesn't actually go so far as to say they've been, um, no, they have been notified to the authorities, but obviously that, uh, that uh, mandatory reporting may be used as a, as a means of bullying people who you want to um, perhaps expose or not... Or if you're in a competitive, if you're in a competitive um, situation where you might want to weed certain people out of your profession. Mm. Um, and so... So it was interesting because um, during the week I also did a webinar um, with Avant. Oh, you're so modern. A I webinar. Know. Look, at, look at you. I know. Sitting and there doing your webinars. Rolls off the tongue. Oh, it doesn't. It, it, it was doesn't. interesting because I think we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Obviously, any of these sort of mechanisms can be abused, but yeah. I, I would be surprised if it is used in that matter very often. You know, I've seen it once. I must think. I must admit. Now that I, I look back, I saw a complaint. 10 years ago now that was um, what's it? vexatious. Yes. It was vexatious. It was um, not, from a... Not done in good faith yeah, is the terminology. Yeah, it yeah. was done by an ang- someone who was very angry at another doctor mm. and made a complaint against the other doctor. But And the other doctor, I've got to say, was quite stressed by it. But I don't think it was a purposeful bullying thing. It was just a very angry doctor who reported another doctor very quickly dismissed, but nevertheless, you know, just the process of being under investigation was, is incredibly stressful. Absolutely. It's slow, too. It doesn't go quick. Once, in, to once a complaint is, is made, yeah, it's, it's pretty slow. And they're trying to speed it up. Um, APRA, the you know, Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Authority, they're doing heaps to speed it up. Yes. And I think that I, and I spoke to someone, I think it was on this show some time ago, and they've got a lot of stuff in place to speed it up. But it's still stressful, but you can't help that. You no. could also say, you know, you reporting someone to the police could be bullying if, you know, if it's not um, true. And what's the option? I mean, you know, the reason these laws came into place is because we're not very good at self-regulating and there's been lots of media about various sort of doctors doing the wrong kind of things and the public don't trust us to do it ourselves. And and historically, we're actually really bad at it. They did some survey that less than 7% of practitioners would report another practitioner, even if they had, you know, first-hand evidence that something wasn't quite up to uh, muster. So I agree entirely, Capri. I just think people who get annoyed that, oh, we have to be judged by these other bodies... 
they've got their head in the sand. Yeah. Se- you know, what's the old saying? You know, Caesar can't judge Caesar. You can't, you cannot manage yourself. You know, you could say um, a royal commissioner can't judge himself whether he's been biased or not. Yes, you know, the whole absolutely. point is you need external people to judge yes. your behaviour. Yes. And, and, you know, you have um, people from the profession as a part of it to help understand the standard, but someone else must be judging it. We used to have it in our college. The College of Psychiatrists used to have a complaints process and we got rid of it about 15 years ago for the same reason. Even if you do judge them t- t- totally independently, there's a perception of bias and so the person's not happy with the outcome anyway. That's right. So a third party is yeah. just the way to go in my mind. There is just one area before we move on... Um do little um, is that the only thing I think that um, is an issue is that um, other than in Western Australia, um, if you're a practitioner who's looking after a, a, a health practitioner who who is supposedly, um, for example, has depression or some other condition that might make them less able to carry out their duties, um, then you're obliged to report them in every other state than Western Australia. And I think that is an issue where where um, uh, apparently there are people in that situation who've actually gone to Western Australia to get help, you know, psychiatric help, because they're too scared to see practitioners in Melbourne, for example, because they're worried about um, being um, mandatory notified because they've got um, this, this, you know, problem. So that's the wrong message, though. Yeah. We are kind of criminalising what should be an an, an environment of open disclosure. Yeah, and people not seeking help early. And um, and that, I think that that is a big issue, and I think it needs to be sort of a national thing where you've got that exemption if you're a practitioner looking after someone who's got something that needs to be attended to. But not if they're putting the public at risk. I don't reckon. If oh, no, the but that's a different risk, thing. But if yeah. you're not even presenting for he- for care because you're worried about what might yeah. happen, then, you know, that's just a bad... bad so, yeah. yeah, but if you see someone and they've got any sort of illness that is putting the public at risk, I, I'm, Absolutely. I sort of that's the bottom think line. you've got to. And having been involved with it many times over the years, I haven't... I've got to say, you know, just as a practitioner who's had been involved in reporting, I've never really seen it work out bad. And the, I've found the medical board and now APRA um, and through the Victorian Doctors' Health, um, what are they called, Victorian Doctors' Health Program, VDHP, um, across at St V's, they, um, they manage the whole process and it's very fair and arm's length and, and they, they've, they hardly ever end up having any sanctions because of their um, impairment, their illness, because the medical board understands it very well and as long as they manage yeah. it, well, of course, we, you know, there's the old one that's recently been in the I won't go into it. In the media, there was the, well, the guy with hepatitis C anaesthetist that probably wasn't managed at all well, but um, from the way it looks from the reports in the papers. But um, yeah, it's a hard area, though. Yeah. It's very hard. And just figuring out what needs to be reported and what doesn't. I often end up ringing up things like the medical board yeah. and saying, can I have an anonymous chat? So not yeah. so much, I don't have to yeah. be anonymous myself. I say, look, I'm not sure about this patient that I'm seeing. Um, they're a practitioner. This is the sort of work they do. This is the sort of problem. You know, is this the sort of thing that I should consider reporting for and they'll say yes or no often they say no they say look there's no real public at risk they're getting help you're keeping an eye on it if you think they're not getting help then maybe do something so they give you really good guidelines and then you could of course i'd much prefer to discuss it with the person before i report them because i pretty much always say to them look i think you are impaired at the moment and i think it's far better for you if you self-report than if i report you and they nearly always choose to do that so you're basically for all the advice that all what what you've said is what um event advise yep so So i could um, so I don't and need to do the a, webinar? A, no, no. no. Yeah. Right. No, you could, you could run the webinar. Um, oh. Do a little, yeah. Could I? Could yeah. I be the expert? Yeah, I think so. I want to be an expert. So. Yeah, I want to be an expert so. one day. Three triple R. It's time to talk yoga. 
Now, Lee Blaschke is the director of the Australian Institute of Yoga Therapy, the past president of Yoga Australia, and serves on the International Association of Yoga Therapists Certification Committee. He's been practising yoga for 45 years. He's just taken a couple of minutes break to come on the show. <laughs> and teaching for more than 35 years, and he's also a qualified counsellor. And sitting next to Lee is Claire Netley, who is the president of the Peak Body of Yoga Australia, principal of This Yoga Life, and yoga expert for the Australian Women's Health Magazine. I read that all the time. <laughs> Claire draws on her 20-year experience in the business world to help people manage stress and balance their physical, mental and emotional health. She's passionate about teaching her students how to take their practice off the mat and into everyday life. Lee, Claire, g'day again. Welcome. Thank you. And g'day again, Steve. And, and I have to say, oh, do, do little, little, do little, do little. I don't even know who this guy is. You <laughs> keep talking. I don't know. It's like a ghost. <laughs> Having known you for a little while, I think the name should be Do A Lot. To no, bugger all. <laughs> Come back next week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go to my house where, you know, there is Netflix, Stan, Foxtel, all the TV, TV channels. TV's ever. What I do is watch TV. How are you guys? Now, why don't we start the ball rolling with... I mean, it's pretty obvious to everyone, but just tell us what yoga is, just in case there's anyone out there who doesn't know. <laughs> well, if I start, if I might, and, and yoga can be anything you really want it to be, but yoga, as we all know, derives from a, some ancient traditions in the Indian subcontinent area, and it's really about bringing the disparate parts of our being together, our mind, body, and some might call it our spirit or that higher aspects of ourselves, to bring them back into alignment so that we live our lives um, more effectively and in accord with who we really are, rather than just playing things out on a habitual basis uh, and being led by the crowd, as it were. We live authentically. We live as true human beings with a deep experience of our place in the bigger picture of things. You know, when you put it like that, it sounds like a complete way of life. But some people, you can dip your toe in the water to varying degrees, can't you? Yeah, you can, but, but that's the reality. It is a complete way of life. And a lot of people come to it uh, for the physical aspect of the practice. And many do, they just dip in and out and they might do a class or two a week. But you can actually... You get the real benefits from it when you do make it part of your everyday life and, and make it a lifestyle. I've heard it being described, um, I've heard meditation being described as like yoga for the mind or the other way around, yoga being described as meditation for the body. Um, but that often that actually signifies that kind of divide between the mind and the body, something I know Dr. Doolittle hates. Um, but do, do you see it as different? Do you see them as actually separate separate entities meditation yoga or is it just one they're one and the, the same thing yeah. yeah yeah they're both a journey and a destination essentially and so what you raise uh, comes back to these um, philosophies behind yoga some talk about a dualistic philosophy some talk about a non-dualistic philosophy and when you really look at the two they sort of merge as one a little bit anyway but this whole idea of yoga is r helping us to recognize that mind and body are really just slightly different vibrations on us on the same continuum but but as you say and as claire was suggesting before really people come to what they call yoga often to work with their body to help their body become a less stressful place to live in so that they can then 
move on to the next part, which is to then de-stress the mind and to live more authentically in the, in the psycho-spiritual sense. I just love that phrase, to make the body a less stressful place to live in. Yeah. <laughs> because that just feels so true yeah. for me a lot of the yeah. time. Um, yeah, a few years ago I actually dabbled my t- toe into yoga, but I must admit I think it, I didn't get the benefit because it, it's, I didn't make it a part of my way of life. But I was incredibly stressed and so I went to a few sessions and I have to admit the bit that I, I was terrible at the downward dog and the upward, whatever, I just couldn't do all the manoeuvres. Um, but what I did appreciate the most was at the end when we just lay still and went into that sort of meditative um, bit um, that I really felt in tune with myself and felt really relaxed and I really got benefit out of that last sort of five or ten minutes of that meditative aspect. My question though is, I know there are all sorts of yoga and my my sister-in-law is a mad yoga, she actually um, teaches yoga, but they're they're the ones that you do in a sauna and there are ones that... Bikram, look at that, look at me, look at me, Bikram, rolling off this time. How do you know which is the one that you should go for, the one that's going to benefit you or or how do you choose because it, it seems like there are so many different types of yoga. Look there are and I think it's a case of trying different classes and finding a class and a style and a teacher as well. that suits you because I think it confuses a lot of people because there are so many options and I say just get in there get in there give it a try see what fits see what resonates and often people will go to one class and walk away and go it's not for me Mm. but they haven't really given it a go or they haven't tried a few different teachers I think one of the biggest things is finding a teacher that you really connect with I think that's really really important and finding a really well qualified teacher as well is really important Mm. so yoga you know, primarily, I suppose, been considered for a long time to be a form of wellness or lifestyle, mm. but it's moving much more into therapies. I mean, I think we've heard a lot of people talking yoga for musculoskeletal problems, and but now into newer areas like psych. What are the different roles of yoga, the different ways it can be used? Yeah, well, the, the term yoga therapy, some feel this is a new term. It's been around for, for hundreds of years, uh, the, the um, yoga chikitsa, the original Sanskrit term. Uh, and in its earliest days, it really was more of a form of psychotherapy. Uh-huh. Not, that, not that yoga teachers are saying they're psychotherapists. I'm putting that in parentheses. Um, but ultimately, whatever we do in yoga, whether it be a physical practice, the asana, whether it be the breathing, the pranayama, or the meditation, all of them will affect the mind um, and we all know that the majority of conditions that people are suffering from have a stress component. And so people are recognising that yoga is starting to become a primary tool and primary activity for helping to address the underlying stressful circumstances and and stress conditions that uh, are comorbidities with other uh, health conditions. So it's... And as a therapy... We have an association, a sister association of Yoga Australia called the Australian Association of Yoga Therapists where people have extra training to in fact learn how to deal with people uh, on a one-on-one basis predominantly to address particular therapeutic needs. Mm -hmm. And some might say this is where yoga came from because as you're probably aware, yoga classes is a fairly modern phenomenon. In India, 100 years ago, there was no such thing as yoga classes. A person went to a yoga teacher with all sorts of names, Guru, Acharya, or whatever the name may have been, uh, and would get what they needed to suit their life, 
be that physical, mental, spiritual. So we're really moving yoga back to where it came from. Because mm. you were telling me um, off air about yoga being used for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Mm. So how would yoga that's being used for, say, PTSD differ from standard yoga? Well, the, there, there are similarities. Um, yoga PTSD takes on board an understanding of what goes on for people with PTSD. So I'll give you an example. Um, the, the, the approach to PTSD yoga that I work with called Integrative Restoration or IRS, um, we ensure that if somebody has presented with PTSD, we encourage them not to close their eyes, for example. Um, we're very careful if we are approaching their body, their physical locality, because we're not quite sure if we haven't interviewed them fully, which we should, of course, what is the reason for their PTSD. Uh, in fact, there's a lovely story told by um, my teacher, Dr Richard Miller, the, the person who started IRS, of a returned serviceman, and he offers this to returned servicemen in the United States, uh, who wanted to have his rifle as sort of nearby as that little safe place. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he was not going to feel safe. And he was able to achieve his yoga and meditation goals by having in his mind this rifle nearby to ultimately move beyond the need of the rifle. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to understand that there are each person in, uh, who has PTSD has their own need for a, a safe place, this, this sort of inner resource of, of safety and well-being. That's what really makes yoga for PTSD stand out a little bit from the what you might call everyday yoga. So this idea of yoga therapy, it sounds like it's a a structured approach designed um, for each particular individual, whereas as opposed to yoga classes, which are kind of group classes, Mm. would would there be a group therapy sort of situation that would be possible at all, or does it have to be a tailored approach to an individual? Yeah, and and you're asking some really salient questions, is that uh, you can have group yoga therapy, and what makes uh, a a group of people coming together uh, a yoga therapy group as distinct from a yoga class is that each person has an individual health assessment. You may be giving them something fairly similar because if you've got somebody coming in and they've all got uh, a yoga class for uh, um, low back, chronic low back pain, but each one has had an individual assessment. Yeah? Whereas in a general yoga class, you might have some basic information, but you haven't had a half hour or 40 minute full health assessment with each person. Claire, what does Yoga Australia do then? What's Yoga Australia's role? So we're the peak body for yoga in this country. We've currently got around 2,500 registered teachers and about 100 courses registered. So we um, basically support and represent teachers from all styles and traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, So all those different branches of yoga, we register those teachers. And we also educate and inform the public about yoga and about yoga teachers and the yoga teaching profession so that's our role wow and so do you like um is everyone who's a yoga teacher have to be um part of yoga australia i assume not no they don't they don't and it's something that we're really trying to encourage we've currently got about 25 percent of uh, teachers in this country registered with us and what we're trying to do is educate and inform the public about the scope of practice of a teacher uh, and about the qualifications of a teacher and what to look for in a good teacher I wanted to ask you about the link between spirituality and yoga, particularly because a listener sent, sent me in this article from uh, The Economist about, you know, just talking about 
how a lot of religions in particular find yoga a bit threatening mm-hmm. and a lot don't too and you know what, what is the link do you have to be spiritual what, what's the whole thing definitely not and, and spirituality means different things to different people mm. and the great thing about yoga is whatever your beliefs are you can practice yep yeah Lee do you want to add anything to that yeah look when I took yoga on, and I'm sure I was a teenager when I started, it actually helped me understand my own religion, that I was, my family's religion that I was born into. Uh, and when we uh, start yoga, in fact, there was a research in, in 2007 published by, uh, Dr., uh, by Stephen Penman through RMIT that showed people come to yoga predominantly for some physical condition. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but they stay, those who stay around for, for more than two years, it's because they're getting some benefit to do with personal development that some might call spirituality. Spirituality could mean going home, being a little bit more kind to your family for some people. For others, it might mean sitting in a temple or in a church or a synagogue or a mosque. But it's whatever you want it to be because the word spiritual itself needs to be defined for you to ask those questions. True, true. And sometimes it's just about actually sitting with yourself. And for many people, that's really, really difficult. Mm. It's like what you were saying before, Dr. Capri, about Shavasana at the end of class. I see a lot of students who really struggle with that time. Mm. They lie there, their eyes are open, they're looking around the room. Mm. Often they get up and leave because the idea of actually simply... Being yes. is really, really challenging mm. for them. Mm. Really challenging. Um, and you're talking about spirituality. And if you're marketing yourself as a as a yoga therapist, if someone's coming to you for therapy, do you feel the need to stay away from discussions about spirituality in terms of affecting your credibility? We address whatever the person's need is in yoga therapy. Certainly the majority of people do come for something either physical or, or, or psychological. However, there are people who come along, and I had a client last week who wanted to come along, and he, he calls it yoga counselling. We're sitting down talking about his understandings of the nature of his being and how he fits into the world. Well, that, to me, is spirituality. And we did it from a yoga perspective, talking about the yoga text, etc. So... Each person will have their own needs, and a good yoga teacher, and particularly a good yoga therapist, is more interested in the needs of the student or client than just teaching what they think they want to teach. Um, now, obviously, it sounds like we all need a good yoga therapist, but um, I read an article earlier in the week about yoga being bad for you. So um, can yoga be bad for you? And I think they're mainly talking about musculoskeletal problems as a result Mm. of doing yoga rather than that's what you go to yoga for. Look, I think with anything, if we're talking about the physical practice, with any physical practice, there are inherent risks. And one of the big parts of your physical practice when it comes to yoga is learning where your boundaries are. So often when we start the practice, and I know certainly from my own experience, when I first started practicing yoga, I had very little body awareness. And what the practice actually does is it brings us out of our heads and into our bodies. And when we lack that body awareness, often we can push ourselves beyond our limits so it's not the yoga itself that is dangerous but it's our approach to the practice and it's often where we get to check in with our ego are we pushing beyond our limits are we trying to achieve a pose that perhaps doesn't suit our body you know it's about finding practices that suit you as an individual we've all got very very different bodies different body shapes sizes different length in our bones so one pose won't necessarily suit everybody so for any physical activity mm. exactly. I guess, if you push it too far yeah there was a study in the united states about three odd years ago uh, that showed 
uh, if you look at the popular activities uh, in, in the United States based, and yoga remembering is very, very big in the United States. One in six people uh, have practiced yoga at some stage in the last two years. It's a huge percentage wow. of the population. Yeah. Um, that yoga had one-fifteenth the reported incidence of adverse uh, situations... Uh, outcomes. Outcomes, rather, um, compared to the next closest physical activity industry. You're comparing it to basketball, for example, which was regarded as a reasonably low, um, at, at reasonably low injury rate uh, sport. Yoga had one-fifteenth... So it is very, very safe as a, as a physical activity. And the other thing about this is the student should not be... And you were talking before about bullying. The student should not be controlled by a teacher to do something because that suits the teacher's ego. Fortunately, with a good Yoga Australia registered teacher, that's less likely to happen. But there are, you, know, you need to take responsibility for saying no if it doesn't feel right for you. You just say, this doesn't feel right for me. And don't be swayed by others in the class or the mm. teacher might like you to do it. Claire, a little birdie, and by little birdie I mean Lee Blaschke, a little birdie <laughs> told me you work sometimes with um, elite athletes. And, I mean, you can obviously probably tell from looking at me I'm probably an elite athlete except that I don't play sport. Um, how do elite athletes benefit from yoga? Well, actually, um, I don't work with elite athletes. I would love to work with elite athletes. But when I was in, um, when I was in sport... Mm-hmm. I worked a lot with elite athletes at the time. Um, I used to work in cricket. And one of the things that was really interesting to me in that world, because I was studying to be a teacher at the time, was, and what I've learned from being in that environment, is in terms of being an elite athlete, there's, there's there's two sides to it, really. There's actually learning your craft. There's the skill of whether you're playing cricket, whether you're a runner, but a big part of that is about the mind. And what yoga can teach us is it teaches us, and what meditation teaches us is non-attachment, and it teaches us to be present. So people have this idea with meditation that we have to stop our thoughts. Mm -hmm. We can't stop our thoughts unless you go and hide in the woods for 30 years and meditate. Or unless you're lucky like me and you don't have many. (laughs) (laughs) Very specific ones. So um, what the practice gives us is it gives us the opportunity to stay present. So, you know, when I was looking at cricket players, they can do all the preparation in the world, but the minute that they get out on the field, it's just them, and it's them and their mind. Mm. And so if they can get themselves into a place where they're truly, truly present, they're not thinking about the bowl that was uh, the ball that was bowled to them before, they're not thinking about tomorrow, they're truly, truly focused on what they're doing at that time, yep. I think it can only improve their performance. Hey, we could go on for ages about this. It's such good stuff, but we have to get on to VC exam stress. But I want to ask one you know, quick, probably easy one for you guys. People out there listening... They haven't done yoga before. They want to get into it. What should? How do they do it? What exactly? What should they do? Jump on your website, or what do they do? Yeah, they should jump onto yogaaustralia.org.au, find a registered teacher in their area, and just go along to a class. Go along, have an open mind, give it a go, um, and yeah, try a few different classes. Give give it a few classes. Often, what happens is people will go along to their first class and either think it's not for them or think it's the best thing that's ever happened to them, and then they don't go back. So I really encourage people to seek out a registered teacher, give it a go, and um, yeah, and, and think about what they want from their practice as well. Share that with the teacher, 
and um, also let the teacher know about any injuries, any conditions that they have. That's really important. And also remembering that if the style that you first tried didn't click, try another style mm-hmm. and, and ask the teacher a little bit about their style and their approach. Mm-hmm. On Good tips. Excellent yeah. tips. Great for you guys to come in, Claire Netley and Lee Blaschke, Thank both you. from Yoga Australia, both experts. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to talk a little bit about VC exam stress. This one came from a request over our Facebook page, Radio 3 Triple R. Notice why I slipped that in. I love it. If we get a few likes, it always cheers me up when I get home and there's a couple of new likes. Oh, look at that. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about VC exam stress and uh, figure out, you know, exactly what we think it is. And we've got a bit of expertise in the studio, apart from our two yogi, um, Dr. Seuss, you're not that far off, VC. You look so young. Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. It's probably ages and you're going to laugh at me. Like I say again, I just age well. Yeah, how long ago did you do it, VC? Oh, 13 years. That long? Oh, God, I would have said five. He's, just, he's so youthful looking. And Capri, you've got a bit of first-hand experience. You've had a couple of kids in the last, what, three or four years who have done it? Yes, I, as I was just saying, I need to see the yogis for some post-traumatic stress. I did two back-to-back, so my son three years ago and then my daughter two years ago. So, um, right. yeah. And I've got one right now yeah. who's... Um, the one who slipped in and then texted me to say, where are you, Dad? You're not home. Where's my breakfast? It's not on the table. What's going on? Because um, he's doing VC and getting spoiled in the process. So we thought we'd t- t- touch on a few topics, like how do you tell if your kid's stressed? What can you do? Are you adding to the stress or are you helping? Maybe we should start with probably what, you know, how do you know if your kid's stressed? What do you guys think? What are the sort of signs? What would you look for? Who wants are, to have a throw? Are they sleeping well? Yep. Sleep? What else? Oh, just that they're just out of sorts and, you know, moody and grumpy and you think that's a typical teenage type thing. But uh, uh, just thinking about my two, one uh, demonstrated it most days and that was all behaviour was kind of off the scale, whereas the other one sort of it was more about, um, you know, change in sleep patterns or just their level of attention at the dinner table, just things like yeah. that. I think yeah. that's the thing, because different people are going to express their stress in different ways. Yes. I mean, some become irritable, demanding, angry, nervous. Some it's about physical complaints, loss of weights, tummy pains. A lot don't sleep well. That's one of the key ones. Try, And, in fact, that's one of the best things you can do to get them through their stress is mm. get them to help them learn to sleep and develop good habits. Poor eating is another thing that comes up a lot. Some kids actually express that they're not happy and they don't, they don't socialise as much. But not, most kids aren't great at expressing their emotions, especially probably to their parents. Um, you know, they're probably the, the main things that people come up with. I think of also regressing, regressing away from the things that you normally do, normal activities, yeah. normally things that you enjoy, which is which can be a hard one to consider because often there's also not much time to do these That's things. Right. And so the line does blur a little bit and... I don't know. I haven't been in that situation for a long time. I've never had to be a parent. To, You'll get there, though. I can parent. see it. I can see it. <laughs> um, one of the questions I want to ask, because, you know, having a kid doing VCE and seeing lots of parents around me, um, you know, I, I often find myself wondering, uh, how much are we adding to the stress above and beyond the actual study. I just see so much pressure put on the kids, and it's not on purpose. Their parents no. are desperately trying to tell their kids how much they want to help their stress, and then they're putting all this... What would I... 
in, sort of like implied pressure, things like, you know, in front of their kids, they'll say things to their friends like, you know, oh, little Bobby wants to do law. He's going to have to do really well to do law. Yes. And, oh, we're so proud. We're going to be so proud if he gets into law or medicine or physiotherapy or whatever. You know, the implied pressure that I see put on these kids. And the parents say all the right things. You can do whatever you want, Sonny Jim. Or, I just want you to be yeah, happy. And, I, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. it's not about uh, the score. It's just yeah. about, you know, doing your personal best, all those I know. sort of and lines. Then a paragraph later they'll say, if you don't study harder, you're not going to get enough marks to get into law. <laughs> and why aren't you, why you, why you in there studying? Yeah. Um, so I reckon yeah, this is my second big, my first big tip. As a parent, I reckon you really have to check yourself. Yes, I agree. I've written that down as well. Yeah, and, I, and, uh, and you've got to really figure out, you know, exactly whose VCE is this? Yes. Is it your kids or is it yours? It's impossible not to feel it reflects on you that was a parent. Did you, did you exactly. find that, Capri? Absolutely. Now, I'm thinking when, when we did VCE or HSC as it was called then, I'm sure our parents were no, not at all invested in the program. I don't think they knew what I was doing or had any kind of... Um, I didn't feel any pressure. and I, Perhaps it was because my parents didn't come from an academic-type background. And I think maybe that's that's another aspect to the pressure that we put on our children yes. because we feel that we've done it all before and, and we kind of know this is the, the pathway to, mm. to happiness and all of that kind of thing. And we chuck our values onto them too. Yes, exactly. Especially, you know, I see this because, you know, most of my friends are, you know, from some sort of academic background too. And so they're constantly putting their own values on their kids. That's right. And thinking just because their education or their medical degree or whatever has worked for them and made them happy, that it's going to be right for the kid. And it's so not true. In, in year 12, there's enough being put on the kids anyway. Um, and as you say, if we, we get off their backs and look after ourselves as, as parents, uh, as a yoga teacher, I'd much rather spend time helping the parent to de-stress, who can then model yes. good behaviour and, and how yep. to deal with stress effectively and in a more subtle, infused way, uh, the, the kid going through this stress will uh, start to turn things around a little. Mm. And then I think, you know, once you've got your own behaviour in control and you are checking it, it is still good to have those conversations to the kids saying, hey, this number does not define you. You are going to have multiple opportunities over the next five to ten years to yes. decide what you want to do with your life. When you're 21, that's another big opportunity to get into university. It becomes a lot of the criteria change. Do not worry. There's going to be solutions. You're going to find something, etc., etc. And so you have those conversations. But on your point there, Lee, you know, what, I wanted to run through some of the things that uh, I reckon help um, from a parent. And I've got a whole list of things here, so I might just run through them and we can give them ticks or no ticks. I don't know. Obviously, I think there's some practical things you can do. Time management advice. Yeah. You know, that's one of the main things they learn at this age and most of us have learned it by now so tips on time management tips on how to find time during the day using small amounts of time as well as large amounts of time you don't have to have an hour free in order to study you can you know do it even if you've got 15 minutes before dinner that sort of stuff but do you think you can actually is it too late at this stage to to try and teach your children how to time manage i mean just thinking about my two one of them had it all sorted by year seven and was amazing at time management and the other one you know it just never really came and it didn't matter what sort of structure or scaffolding I put into place you, you know it either is something that they're good at or not. I still think you just chip away at it and don't forget you know VCE isn't just an end result it's also a process they learn a lot from doing VCE yeah. that's where they might finally hone their time management skills. I think reward for efforts is a good thing too when mm. kids do do work you know just popping in rewards, taking to a movie, some sort of treats, um, all that sort of stuff. 
there, there are lessons from CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. about tra- being not overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And a very simple one is this idea of breaking up the day into, say, three parts, four-hour blocks, and just having a list of one or two tasks to tick off in each block. So instead of having eight things that you need to do, you've got this four-hour block, you can tick off two things. That, that great achievement of ticking mm, something off. Just saying, well. being, yeah. Chip, um, yeah, chipping away at it. Yeah, I like that. Another one I've got is obviously lots of TLC. You know, I mean, I'm letting, you know, I'm dropping a few of my rules, like, you know, my son cleaning up after himself. I'm making him much more yeah. rich, and I'm letting him have all that. Yeah. So, and I've slackened off that. But he's, you know, come those end of the exams, he's not going to know what hit him. No, <laughs> you cannot leave the plate in the lounge room. No, you cannot go and have um, grilled at the drop of a hat every time you have a <laughs> slight tinge in your stomach. Um, I think encourage breaks. I think things like two. I know a lot of parents. Some, not every kid's going to like this, but some parents, you know, give their kids massage. You know, not give themselves, but give them a token to go and have a massage. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think some of that stuff's great to teach them good relaxation skills. Yeah. And, yeah. and to sit down a couple of times a day with your kid with a cup of tea. Just sit there. Just, just sit together, have a couple of tea, tea, and just sit for a moment together. That bonding, that little break, is an enormous value. And yeah, being in the moment. And when you're in those breaks, trying not to talk about anything to do with, with their VCE, you know, yes. when you're at the yeah. dinner table, not sort of falling into that, you know, so, you know, just make, enabling them to try and just take that time out completely for even if it's just 15, 20 minutes. A couple of yeah. physical things really work hard, as you said earlier, Lee, on getting their sleep right. If you're not yep. sure how to do that, jump on a website, put in healthy sleeping habits or sleep hygiene, you'll find a million tips. Also, get them exercising, eating well, if they're really being slack, chuck in a vitamin tablet. Do a few things like that just to keep them as healthy as you possible. As possible. And another one for kids these days too, minimise their stimulants. A lot of them are drinking Red Bull yeah. as well as coffee. Yep. Minimise those stimulants. And if they are going to use them, teach them that they can't use them within about six or seven hours of bedtime. Mm-hmm. My basic rule is nothing after 5pm. No stimulants because you won't sleep well. Um, a f- oh, the only other thing I wanted to touch on, I've got a few other things, but... Help them avoid burnout at this time of the year. A lot of kids almost throw in the towel in the last three or four weeks. They think, Mm. I'm getting nowhere, I'm hopeless, I'm not going to do well, and they chuck in the towel when really it's like the end of the marathon. You know, you can have a little bit of a sprint at the end and do a little bit better. And everyone thinks they're going bad towards the end. And just encouraging them to understand that it's a normal emotion to go through, to feel you're not coping Mm. at the end. Just take a break and just hang in there. Don't throw in the towel because pretty much every most people do better than they expect to do anyway we're gonna to have to stop it because i can see the time's going over hey lee blaschke and claire netley from yoga australia i'm stumbling over my words thanks so much for coming in and telling us all about yoga that was fantastic it's great to be here thank you so and capri and um Seuss, fantastic to see you again we're going to wind up say thank you to everyone for listening especially all the subscribers we're going to hand over to the scientists at einstein and gogo who are raring to go to tell you everything there is to know in the world bar nothing this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.